Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. I trust you all had a terrifying and safe Halloween. I myself had a low-key evening. I carved a few pumpkins with my fiancé, roasted some pumpkin seeds, watched a few horror movies, and downed a couple pumpkin beers. Fairly low-key compared to my past Halloween experiences, but it was an enjoyable evening nonetheless. I have a great episode lined up for you guys this evening, but before we dive in, I wanted to share some good news with everyone. Well, good news to anyone that listens to the show, at least. After over a year and a half of producing the show, I'm finally at the point that I can extend the running time of each episode. So, from here on out, each episode will be as close to an hour long as possible. Of course, this means more work for me, and more importantly, I'll need the stories to keep flowing in. So if you have an encounter story you'd like to share, call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click on the Submit Your Story tab. The hotline is always toll-free and open 24-7. So give it a call and share your story today. Oh, one more thing. Don't forget that there is a five-minute limit per call. So if you need more time to tell your story, simply call back and pick up where you left off. I will take care of the rest. Alright, let's get this show on the road. I've traveled throughout this great country of ours. I've been to nearly every state, and many several times. I enjoy spending time in new cities, visiting the parks and taking in the beauty each region has to offer. But there is one part of the U.S. I have not been to. A part that is steeped in lore, history, and soaked in the blood of pioneers, pilgrims, and patriots. Of course, I speak of New England. I've long dreamed of the day I get to visit the hollow grounds of Salem, or the storied countryside of Terrytown, otherwise known as Sleepy Hollow. But until the day I finally get to explore these enchanting locales, I have to settle for calls such as this one. This is Alexi's call from Massachusetts. Hey Derek, uh, my name is Alexi. I'm a huge fan of your show, um, 
and I wanted to call and submit a story. Uh, this story is mainly my mother's story, and it takes place in a school located in a very old house. So I'd like to start with a bit of background on my mother. Um, I think she's a sensitive or something, you know, kind of like a, a maybe not a psychic, but something. So, um, I know when she was young, she had a Ouija board experience. I have never gotten much detail about what happened out of her. She said something quote, followed her home. Um, she had a friend, uh, who lived in Florida when we were growing up. We're, we're from, uh, Massachusetts and uh, when I was growing up and um, they would try and call each other at the same time a lot this happened a lot um, and also she kind of attracts weird people a lot of strangers will come up to her and talk to her and kind of vent to her and uh, if you know anything about uh, the Boston area people aren't the friendliest people in the world so that's kind of unusual <clears throat> so that's kind of the background on my mother. Um, these stories take place at a school located in a house built in the early 1600s. Um, this house has a very storied history, I suppose, that I don't know a lot about, to be honest. Um, it was part of the Underground Railroad. It, uh, it was a bomb shelter and Beyond that, I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I know the barn was very old, too. They had a barn connected to it. Um, so when it became a school in the 70s, uh, the people who owned it uh, shut off all the ovens in the house and um, sealed all of the fireplaces so they couldn't even be used. And... Um, my mother started working there in the early 2000s. I actually attended school there from the early 90s through the year 2000. Um, but my mother began teaching in the year 2000. Um, I didn't really start hearing any paranormal-type stories until the mid-2000s. Uh, the first story I heard was uh, there was a, a little boy who... Uh, I don't remember why, but he, he had a... Uh, like a state-appointed handler, for back of a, lack of a better term, who kind of followed him around. And um, he walked into my mother's classroom, which is uh, which contained a hidden door to the underground for the underground railroad purposes. Um, so he walks in there, and it's and it's this little boy, his handler, and and my mother. And he goes, "Who's that man?" And everybody kind of looks at each other and goes, what man? It's just the three of us. And he goes, no, 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 the, the man over there. And this is like, this little boy is maybe six years old. And so there are, you know, the two women are like, uh, well, that's weird. And they kind of didn't think a lot of it. But so that was, uh, then some time passes. And uh, my mother has her first real uh, paranormal experience. Um, she was there late one night and... She is looking down a hallway, and she watches a, a man pass perpendicular to the hallway, you know, cross from one room to another. Um, and he's wearing 
colonial period clothing. She described very clearly he had high socks with the ribbon tied and a you know a tricorner hat and and he was she she was like this is exactly what I'd picture if I pictured somebody from the revolutionary era. Um so that was really her first sighting. She didn't know what to make of it. She ran down the hall and tried to you know find this guy because she should have been the only one in the building and it was you know late everybody else had left she was getting ready to leave herself so that kind of spooked her a little bit um so she would hear doors slam she would she could hear music play um the former owners of the house are people we know and they've got some wild stories um much more wild than I can tell you about and I don't even want to repeat them because I don't even know how credible they are to be honest with you they're way out there so um time goes on now my mother had a desk that was between a fireplace and this this kind of trap door this underground railroad trap door um and one of her students drew this, you know, four-foot-long caricature of her as a gift to her at one point in time. He was a very talented artist. Um, you know, fifth, sixth grade, that sort of time, you know, that sort of age. Um, it was, it was, you know, on one long sheet of paper. And so my mother had it hung up for years next to her desk. And... Um, so, not long after it was drawn, you could uh, you could watch the paper roll up, pause at the top, and roll back down. And roll up, pause at the top, and roll back down. When, for hours, or the entire length of the day, it had been still. I'd, I've seen this happen myself. So, you know, you don't think a lot of it, I guess, when you're when you're sitting there watching it, you're like, huh, that's odd. But, um, that, that was one thing that happened frequently. Um, things attached to the wall with tape or with push pins would detach and fall off kind of spontaneously. And, um, it got so commonplace that my mother would, uh, ask the ghosts to stop. They'd be doing things, and she'd say, "Listen, I gotta, I gotta finish what I'm doing. Leave me alone, all right? I gotta finish this." And it would, it would stop for the night. They'd, they'd respond to it, which I always thought was, was uh, cute. She, she always felt like it was children. Anyway, so the real heart of the story is. Uh, this is probably, this is 2009, I think fall 2009, fall, winter 2009. So my mother's there late grading with another teacher. And um, she's there and they're kind of hanging out and they're quietly working in the same room. It's 10 o'clock at night or so. And the paper starts rolling up and the guy goes, what, what's up with that? What's going on here? 
And so she kind of launches into the whole thing, you know, everything I've told you and, and, um, some of the stories from this previous owner and, and she's like, Oh, you know, the previous owner told me once that they like keys. They're really into keys. Um, and so this guy, he's turning white through all of this and he's like, okay, I'm going to go home. And she's like, well, I guess I'm done for the night. I'll go home too. And so they pack up and they go out to their respective cars. And my mother goes to put her key in the ignition and the key doesn't fit. So she goes back in the house and in the, in the school, to figure out what's going on. And the key's twisted. Like somebody took two pairs of pliers and twisted the key into a helix. And she's going, what is going on? And she goes out. And she she has a suspicion as to what's going on, and she knocks on the window of the uh, the other teacher's car door. She goes, "See, I told you they like keys." And um, she calls my father, and my father drives out with two pairs of pliers, and he untwists the key, and he goes, "Which one of your students would have done this?" And that's kind of that's kind of where it got left. Um, so my mother kept her purse in a closet right behind her desk. Now, yeah, she wasn't at her desk the whole school day, but at the same time, she wasn't away from her desk long enough for anybody to probably gain the means necessary to uh, to pull off a prank like this, as far as we can all tell. I, I mean, if you think about it, you're going to need two pairs of pliers, if they're kids, they're going to have to get into areas they're not supposed to be in. I, I used to, to work, uh, I used to do maintenance projects for the school during the summers when I was in college. And you couldn't even find tools when you wanted to find them. It's not easy. It wouldn't be easy to get two pairs of pliers. You'd probably need big channel lock type pliers. I don't think seventh graders were going to have the planning and resources and time necessary to pull this off me personally, um, that group is also not the type of group that you would uh, expect to attempt something like this. I know that doesn't stand for much in the debunking world or, or whatever you want to say, but, um, it's, uh, I think it's equally as probable that it was given the history of the place, something paranormal as it not being something paranormal. Um, you know, as I said, I've had my own experiences there. Um, I saw an apparition walking down the driveway once, um, teachers would frequently see shadows moving around, you know, blacker than black type, type events. There was a teacher who was allowed to sleep there, uh, you know, like live there over a summer because he, I don't know, his living situation changed kind of quick or whatever, what happened. And he got slapped in the face in the middle of the night by nobody. And he moved out that night. Um, so these are uh, entities with some amount of uh, grasp on reality. And I, I have heard stories of poltergeists or, or uh, demonic... I think they were poltergeists, but I've heard stories of spirits warping pots and pans before and so you know this keys metal pots and pans are metal if it's an electromagnetic event 
you know, maybe maybe it's the same type of event. Um, so anyway, that's that's pretty much my story. Um, I'll have to call back in with a uh, with a hometown hauntings story at some point too. If if uh, if you're gonna do another hometown hometown uh, stories episode. So anyway, love the show. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Alexi. My first observation is the same one made anytime I hear stories of New England. Colonial ghosts are always so damn polite. They always seem to appear and disappear in a calm, orderly fashion. You almost never hear of terrifying ghosts from that region of the country. It's always Colonel So-and-so that disappears in the bell tower, or the governor's wife who paces the stairs waiting for her love to return. It's so, uh, civilized. That observation aside, I must say, I'm impressed by the twisted key. For fun, I tried to bend an old house key with my hands. To no one's surprise, I was unable to even make the slightest alteration. With the use of some pliers and a vice, however, I was able to twist it. So then I naturally thought back to when I was in 7th grade. I'm not sure I would have had the strength to bend the key then, and if I did, it would require the same tools that I needed now. Making this an unlikely practical joke. Of course, it's possible that Alexi's mother somehow bent the key herself by mistake. I remember an old car I had in college. The key was so worn out that it bent and broke off in the door. So I suppose anything is possible. But as it is with most haunted locations, it's easy to explain away an encounter or even a string of them. But when anecdotal evidence is collected over a span of years, as it is the case here, it forces even the hardest of skeptics to take a second look. Thanks again, Alexi, for sharing your experiences. And as for the hometown legend segment, I'll be revisiting that soon, so please, hold on to that story. We're going to shift gears here for our next call. The following was submitted anonymously. While we may have many UFO-type encounters on the show, this one ends a little differently than most. Hey, Derek, um... I'm calling because I have a, I don't know if it counts as a monster story or even a story that should be on your show, but I wanted to sort of tell it because I have an explanation, but the part that I can't explain I think is the weirdest. So this happened to me back, I believe it was 2006. Um, Me and my friends have been hanging out and we decide, you know, it's, you know, two in the morning, we, we should probably all head home. So we departed from where we were all hanging out at, and we were all three of us were in separate vehicles. We had all driven there on our own, and we uh, were driving home. And I had to I take, took a different way, so I'm driving in one direction. The other two are following each other because they're heading off in another direction. Well, around about two ten in the morning, I just happened to glance up because something caught my eye as I was driving, and there was this bright blue what looked like cylindrical or moving object in the sky and I looked back again it just sort of flashed and it was gone and it kind of it didn't creep me out I was it was really weird because I thought I would be creeped out by something like that and it didn't so I immediately turned my car around to head back because I was going up a mountain so I figured oh well maybe it was a flare I don't know I don't know what it was I could not put together what it was so I drove back down, you know, to where I could see more of the mountain and looked. I didn't see anything, and I was, like, trying to figure out what that was. 
and I started to put together, well, I, I did just see a, a UFO by the definition, so I, I didn't know how to really process that, so I proceeded to drive home and kind of, you know, was like, I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just making it up. And I, I, I did check, did check my clock and everything, there was no missing time, no strange, strangeness like that. So I got home, went, went to bed, and then next day was out hanging out with one of the guys that I was hanging out with the night before, and um, I don't know how it got brought up, but we kind of, kind of asked each other almost at the same time, did you see anything weird last night? And we both at the same time said, you saw the blue light. And we both kind of sat there and then explained to each other what we both saw, describing the exact same thing. The funny thing is, they were five miles away from where I was and described seeing the exact same blue light going through the sky and the flash. And we talked to our third friend and just, we, we didn't prompt him. We just asked him if he saw anything, you know, what did you, blah, 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 kind of asked him stuff. And he told us the story without us prompting him or telling him that we saw anything. And he talked and told us the exact same story. Well, a few days go by, and I'm thinking on it, and I'm like, you know what, I probably just saw a shooting star, was was kind of my, my, my conclusion. I'm like, I don't think it was anything. It probably was just at a weird angle, and everything like that. So, I mean, I just saw a really low shooting, you know, really, really low shooting star. Well, my grandparents were visiting a few weeks later, and my grandfather was in the military for years. And I was sitting there, and they had, you know, they were asking how my dad had been. I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw this, and I started to tell them the story. I got to the part where I saw, so I saw a blue light in the sky, and he immediately interrupted me and went, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't know what you saw. And I was like, no, 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 I, I think it was, and he goes, no, no, you probably were, like, seeing swamp gas or something. And I'm not joking, I kind of sat there, and I went, swamp gas, where we live? And he goes, he goes, you don't know what you saw. You probably saw a rocket launch, and that's all it was. And he, he was starting to get very agitated. And I was just like, I, I not, I'm not saying I saw, a, a, like, an alien ship or anything. I'm just saying. And he goes, you didn't see that. You don't know what you saw. And I wouldn't talk about it anymore. And he got up very frustrated and left the room. And I've never had the guts to ask any follow-up questions on that. But it was really weird because he was almost like somebody who was... He, he was acting like someone who was sent out to sort of tell somebody, Hey, you don't know what you saw. Stop talking about it. Maybe it's his years of service or maybe it's that, but I've never I've never asked any follow-up questions on it. I, 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 I don't know if I ever will or ever should, but it, it's just... Like I said, I kind of conclude that I saw a shooting star... But his reaction is the weirdest part of this story. Because I'm wondering, what triggered that so deeply in him? That he had to tell his, his own grandchild that, you know, you don't know what you saw. When all I was kind of describing was, you know, just a random light in the sky. And I hadn't even said it was a UFO before he started jumping on me about it. So, I just, I just, I just don't know. I just find it weird. Um... I don't know if anyone else has ever had any experiences where someone sort of told them, hey, you don't know what you saw, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I know through UFO lore, 
I've heard that before, but I just I just wanted to share share this story with you guys. So so thank you, Derek, for for doing an amazing show. Um, hopefully, this finds a place on an episode for you, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Thanks again. Thank you, caller. I will start with the initial encounter. As far as UFO sightings go, this one is par for the course and not all that interesting. I suppose that would all change if I were the one standing under it, but it's a common sighting nonetheless. What really got me excited was the grandfather's reaction. I spent a lot of time with my own grandparents, enough time to know that they had a different mentality than I did. They held firm to their beliefs. They didn't question authority, nor did they take risks. It all sort of clicked when the caller mentioned that the grandfather had spent time in the military. So applying both the mentality of the older generation and the military history to the story, it's not hard to imagine that the grandfather had some sort of experience with unidentified flying objects, or at the very least, some sort of top-secret vehicle that he was told to keep quiet about. So that leaves us with why. Why, after all these years, is he still willing to turn a blind eye? Was it his way of protecting the grandson? Did some long-forgotten training kick in? Lastly, it's interesting to note that his reaction was not all that dissimilar to those of the infamous Men in Black. They often told witnesses that they were mistaken about what they saw and sometimes became agitated and adamant when faced with opposition. From the sounds of the call, it seems that the grandfather is still living. So my suggestion would be to find a sensitive way to approach the situation and see if he's willing to open up a bit. Perhaps bring up a recent sighting in the news. Maybe, just maybe, he'd be more willing to discuss if the witnessing party wasn't a member of his own family. Thank you again, caller, for submitting. This was a very interesting call, indeed. Our next submission is one I've been sitting on for a while and finally decided tonight is the night to bring it out. The following is a written submission from Andrew in Australia. Hi, love your show. It's the only podcast I have listened to more than one episode, as normally this topic is overplayed with silly noises or comments. I'd love your devil's advocate view at the end of the calls, keeping a nice balance of maybe, and would love to hear your thoughts on this. My name is Andrew, and I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and my story is based on the use of a Ouija board. Around ten years ago, me, along with three or four of my friends and my brother, would regularly use a store-bought Ouija board as our Friday night entertainment. We would have been in our mid-teens, and in all honesty, have probably been very lucky not to get ourselves in more trouble, considering some of the stories I have heard about Ouija boards. For us, the board didn't work every time, and from memory, there was no coincidence when it did or didn't. For example, one of my friends was there, it worked, and then didn't work when he wasn't. Personally, I wanted to believe in the paranormal, however was quite a skeptic simply because I hadn't experienced anything to make me think otherwise. And while the board seemed to work, I always thought, which one of you is moving this? Although, I was still too scared to do it on my own. Sadly, my friend's dad passed away a few years before I had met him. I think he was about 10 at the time, and neither of his parents believed in putting their money in banks. His mother knew there was money in the house, although she was unaware of where it was. Now his family and friends, myself included, had searched the house top to bottom, and even had a builder friend check out the house for hollow walls, etc. No luck. However, one evening, this all changed. We made contact with the spirit who claimed to be a girl named Lisa. 
This girl said she knew my friend's dad and would ask him where the money was. The next thing the board spelled out was book, and we asked, what book? It simply went to 13. So not knowing what to make of this, we brushed it off and went on with our night. A couple of days later, my friend called me and said that he had found the money in an encyclopedia, volume 13. The book was hollowed out, and there was the money they had been looking for for over five years. This experience still gives me the goosebumps, as we are obviously making contact with something that I cannot possibly explain. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Andrew, for sharing your experience. As I've stated on the show more than a few times, I don't put a whole lot of stock in Ouija boards. I've done my fair share of playing around with them, but I haven't had an experience of my own. What I do think they do is allow the user's imagination to run wild. And if you're using the board with a jokester, you're likely to either have a great time or a terrifying time. As for your particular experience, I can't help but notice that the number selected was 13. An infamously evil number. Of course, I'm using air quotes here. That number is so feared that many buildings refuse to label a 13th floor. Musical artists will skip the 13th track on their CDs, and there is even a word for the fear of the number 13, which I will not try to pronounce. So my thought is that someone in the group thought the experience would be more sinister if the number was used. And it just so happened that the money was hidden in that volume of the encyclopedia. But, as I always say, you never know. I guess it's just as possible that the spirit of the deceased father used any outlet he could to share valuable information. And luckily for him, it all seemed to work. Thank you again, Andrew, for taking the time to write in all the way from Australia. Next up, we hear from a familiar voice. If you remember, E.H. Smith called in a while back with her own story and to recruit Shadowman witnesses for her upcoming book. Well, E.H. is back, and this time she brought a strange pet with her. This is her call. Good evening, Captain Hayes. This is E.H. Smith again. And I'm actually a little bit behind on the show. I'm currently listening to season three, and I was listening to episode 17, and the first call was somebody named Alex calling in about seeing a headless animal running through his house. And I just have to say that I I was driving my car, and I I like almost wrecked my car, And I went, what out loud? Because I've seen the same thing and nobody has ever um, posted anything like that online. I haven't ever heard anything like that before until now. And um, yeah, so I was just sitting on the couch in my boyfriend's house and I happened to glance down the hallway And this weird, like, white, headless cat darted across the hall and went behind a box. And I immediately ran down the hall to look. And it didn't actually register at first that the cat was headless. I just saw white cat and went, we don't have a white cat in this house. So I ran down to see what the heck was going on. And there was nothing there. Nowhere. 
And I mean, none of the cats in the house are white. There are five, and they are all varying shades of brown or black. There is not a solid white cat. And then, of course, this this apparition thing was headless. So it was when I finally realized, you know, that it registered that this was a headless cat, I was kind of in shock. I didn't really know what to do at that time. So yeah, um, I have other stories. I had planned to call in with something else entirely, but when I heard that call, I just had to call in again and, um, and let you know. And I guess let Alex know that, uh, he's not the only one. So thanks for listening. And, uh, I'll be sure to call back again with some other spooky stories. Thanks. Thank you, EH. As she mentioned, her story is in response to Alex's call from episode 17 of season 3. Since that encounter is so short and so similar to EH's, I've decided to play it in its entirety. So give this a listen and compare. Hey, how's it going? My name's Alex. Um, I'm calling from Redondo Beach. I called about a year ago about uh, with a couple of stories about uh, shadows and um, I just wanted to tell you about another experience I had maybe about a couple of months ago. It happened on a weekend. Um, my girlfriend's niece was staying over and uh, I agreed to sleep on the couch. And she, my, my cousin's niece was going to sleep with my girlfriend in the bed. So um, it's about, I don't know, maybe one, two o'clock in the morning and I just randomly wake up and I look to the... To, my TV and I see this animal shaped figure like the outline of this animal shaped figure just running through my living room um and it was headless too which was weird so I grabbed anything I grabbed a pillow that I had and I threw it at it and then it just disappeared it vanished um I was having trouble sleeping all night after that and then my girlfriend randomly appears and uh the, the exact moment she decided to walk into the living room I had the lights on, just, I had the lights on, so the exact moment that she decided to walk into the living room, uh, the lights started flickering, all weird, and they just shut off, and me and my girlfriend were freaked out, wondering what the, what, what the hell that was, and, um, yeah, uh, I went back to the room with her, slept on the floor while my niece and my girlfriend were sleeping in the bed, and, like, I, I still couldn't fall asleep, like, there was this presence that just wouldn't allow me to sleep every time I closed my eyes I felt like something was scratching something it was just a bad night and to make this even weirder is that my niece well my niece my girlfriend's niece her father would always mention that my niece would walk around the house and randomly stop and point to corners or parts of the house where nothing was there and say monster so that just makes it even more suspicious. Does my niece have a ghost or some type of entity following her? I don't know. Well, that's my scary story. Great podcast. Um, keep it up and uh, thanks. Bye. I'm not sure what to say about either of these calls, except that if anyone out there has had an experience anything similar, let's hear it. 
I'm wondering if this is something that occurs more often than we realize. And thank you both very much for sharing your similar stories. Our next call is a classic example of cryptozoology at work. This is Josh's call. Hi, Derek. Uh, my name's Josh. You used one of my stories about the possibly phantom drug dealer, and I enjoyed hearing it out in the air, so I decided it was time to continue. So, by the time I was 10, my family had made enough money that we were able to move out of the city and into the country. And I discovered early on that I really loved being in the woods. And my father was able to teach me everything he knew about tracking and hunting and starting a fire and survival. And by the time I was 11, I figured I was pretty much an expert in woodcraft. I could take on everything it threw at me. I also had just read Mysterious America by Lauren Coleman, and it ignited me a little bit, and I thought I would make a great young cryptozoologist. So I want to say this would be about 1986, when I was 11. And one July afternoon, I was prowling the woods behind our house when I found a huge set of tracks. Um, they looked canine, but they were bigger than any dog I'd ever seen. So with the infallible object of a kid who doesn't know what he's going to do if he finds an animal that he tracks it, I decided I'd track this thing as far as I could. Well, I spent an enjoyable afternoon tracking this giant canine wolf beast through the woods and the brambles and the basically the horrible underbrush of New England forests. It was a particular point of pride when it crossed the road and I was able to pick up the trail on the other side. I felt like I was a big mighty white hunter then. Well, it was getting darker, and it would be about time for me to head home, so I figured I'd follow it a little longer. Um, and as I did, I realized I was coming to the houses from a side street not far from my house. It wasn't too long till despite my dismay, I uh, tracked it to a house with a gate in the backyard. And I realized that I'd spent all day tracking a St. Bernard, who must have got out and came back because he was in his backyard behind a fence. He actually came to the fence to greet me and wagged his tail and slobbered everywhere the way they do. But I was pretty disappointed. That, I mean, I was proud that I tracked it, but there was no cryptozoology to be had there. It was getting dark, and I still had about a quarter mile to go, so I made my way out to the road and started heading home. By that time, it was getting dark, and so I was almost to my house. I was stopped to admire some owls catching bugs in the streetlight. As I was walking past, it occurred to me that owls don't catch bugs in streetlights, and they don't flock. So as I stopped to take a look, I noticed I was looking at bats. Very, very big bats. Um, they're definitely bigger than any bats I've ever seen. and They were the size of a, at least a barn owl. So being that I was almost home, I ran home. and Since it was Sunday night, my father was home. 
and I ran in, burst in, and told him what happened, and we ran back. And they were still there, and we watched these huge bats flutter around the streetlights for quite a while. We went home, and I mean, this was before the internet, so we couldn't just Google it, but over the next couple of days when we had free time, we tried to find out what these huge bats were, because as far as I know, the biggest bat around our house was the big brown bat, which is possibly like 10 inches wide. Definitely not the size of an owl. Well, the closest we could come was the hoary bat, which is the largest bat in New England, and actually looks a little bit like a barn owl. But this maximum wingspan is still only about 14, 15 inches. These are much bigger than that. We went back over the course of the summer and we saw them several times. My father knew somebody in the game fishing game department. He didn't have any answers for us. And he came out to watch them with us one time. After that year, we never saw them again, and we never really did get an answer why these bats were so big, where they went, or why they were there in the first place. I know that's not the most exciting story in your podcast full of supernatural strangeness, but over the years I found it to be a pretty good example of how cryptozoology research actually works. You might go out looking for Bigfoot, and then you'll find a strange-looking cat instead, and you'll never find out the reason why it was there or what it was doing there. So, I mean, I do have some more stories to share over my career, and we'll get to them, but I guess my OCD is making me go in order. So, cheers, and love the podcast. Bye. Thank you, Josh. I think the first part of your story is the first on the show to actually have a verified conclusion. I can only imagine your excitement and probably fear as you tracked what I assume you thought was some sort of dogman beast. But I have to say my favorite part was the bats. I am fascinated by bats and have been ever since I was a kid. There's just something about them that evokes the thought of mystery and intrigue. As Josh mentioned, Finding a camp of abnormally large bats isn't the most interesting thing in the world, but it is significant for the field of cryptozoology. After all, according to Josh, they were too large to be native bats, so clearly there was something strange about them. I would go as far as to compare Josh's bats to the rash of large black cat sightings across not only the U.S., but also England. Like large bats, large cats are a known living creature, but when they're found in areas that they should not be, it certainly raises a few eyebrows. I will finish by saying that the largest bat in North America is the big brown bat, with a wingspan of up to 16 inches. And the largest in the world is the flying fox, which can have a wingspan of up to 6 feet. And that is a big bat. Thanks again, Josh, for sharing your encounters. I really look forward to hearing your other brushes with the unexplained. Now, before I visit the final story of the evening a few quick announcements. A reminder that if you enjoy the show, please consider a small donation to help keep everything moving smoothly. I've been kicking around the idea of bringing on a sponsor, but as I've mentioned in the past, I'd like to avoid that as long as possible. To donate, simply go to the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click on the Donate tab. Literally any amount will be a huge help on my end. While the cost of producing the show is not huge, there is a handful of monthly fees that I must cover out of pocket to keep the show going. 
so any help is greatly appreciated. Of course, if donating is not your thing, consider purchasing one of the new Mirrored Men t-shirts from the website. I don't make a ton off of each purchase, but if I sold a handful each month, it would certainly go a long way to ease the burden. And lastly, if you're not able to donate financially, please consider leaving a rate and review on iTunes. Over the past few weeks, the reviews have really been pouring in, and that's gone a long way to bring in new listeners. So thank you to everyone that's already went ahead and submitted theirs. Okay, back to the show. Our final story of the evening is not a submission, but rather a visit to the Local Legends segment. This time, I thought it would be fun to visit the West Coast, a region of the country that doesn't get featured in this segment all that often. Tonight, we explore the dark watchers of the San Lucia Mountains in Big Sur, California. The Dark Watchers. The Sierra de Santa Lucia is a coastal mountain range that stretches from Monterey in the north to a villa beach in the south. These mountains are home to a number of spooky characters, including the famously haunted Hearst Castle, Santa Lucia Lizard People, and the mysterious Dark Watchers. The Dark Watchers are larger-than-life phantoms. Reportedly, all you see is a tall silhouette. They almost look like horses standing on their hind legs with the assistance of a walking stick. The Dark Watchers were first recorded by Shumash Indian cave paintings. Historian Thomas Blackburn found 111 Shumash oral narratives likening the Dark Watchers to a creature called the Nunnacy, something we'd call a demon today. The Shumash believe the Earth we inhabit is the Middle World, while the Sun and other celestial bodies occupy the Upper World, and a seedy Lower World lies beneath the Earth's crust. The Nunnacy are Lower World creatures, monstrous and misshapen. Author John Steenbeck gives a warning about the Watchers in his story, Flight. When thou comest to the highest mountain, if thou seest any dark-watching men, go not near to them, nor try to speak to them, and forget not thy prayers. No one knew who the Watchers were, nor where they lived, but it was better to ignore them and never to show interest in them. They did not bother one who stayed on the trail and minded his own business. The poet Robinson Jeffers saw them as well, writing only that they are forms who look human, but are certainly not. Whoever they may be, these sentinels are impervious to weather. They're spotted year-round, standing guard in the blistering heat of summer and during the treacherous winter storms. They're one of the easiest Californian monsters to see for yourself. They seem not to care if you spot them, but don't try to get any closer. That clip was part of a longer video posted by YouTube user Fantastic Daily. The video goes on to explore several other Southern California mysteries, so I highly suggest taking a look. A link to that video can be found in the show notes on the website. I've been lucky enough to spend time in this region, and I can't recommend it enough. Go see Big Sur. But while you're there, keep your eyes on the cliffs. You never know who might be watching. And that's going to do it for this episode. A quick thank you to the talented Corey Trim for his amazing artwork. And music from tonight's episode was provided by Mayu and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and until next week.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to Counterclock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.